It's Thursday, December 10th, and it's time for the 24th edition of Combing the Stacks. Whether you are a new or long-time listener, we'd like to thank you for joining us on our trip through the top 100 albums of the 1960s, as ranked by the charts at besteveralbums.com. Each show features three segments covering three unique albums. Your hosts are the three-man band of John, Josh, and Matt. We start things off this week with our second trip into the discography of Pink Floyd. Matt will lead the segment on The Piper at the Gates of Dawn, Pink Floyd's debut album from 1967. The album is considered one of the foremost psychedelic albums of the 1960s and features the band's original lineup. Our second segment is helmed by John and covers the rock opera Tommy by The Who from 1969. Considered one of the most important albums in The Who discography, it spawned both plays and movies and led to multiple tours throughout three decades dedicated to playing the album in its entirety. We finished the show with a segment led by Josh that covers the English singer-songwriter Nick Drake and his 1969 debut album, Five Leaves Left. The album was largely unnoticed in its time, but has gained a large following beginning in the 1980s of artists such as R.E.M., The Cure, The Black Crows, and Kate Bush. Coming the Stacks is preparing for the holiday season and decking our musical halls. Join us inside and help us weather the cold. December 10th, 2020, and you are listening to the 24th episode of Combing the Stacks. It is an exciting episode this week as we're going to cover Pink Floyd. We're going to cover The Who, and we are going to, for the first time, dip into the catalog of Nick Drake. But enough about that. Let's do the quick check-in this week. Matt, how you doing? All right. Hanging in there. I'm ready for the holidays. I was watching some Christmas specials the last couple of days and (laughs) getting my... uh, I haven't had any eggnog. Oh, (laughs) you know what I watched? I watched Santa's Magic Toy Bag, which when I told Sherry about that, she thought it Mm. was something very dirty. Yeah, that Uh, sounds like a porn. It sounds like it's not. It's (laughs) actually... I, and I didn't realize this. Too. It was a, it's a, what is it? it? A, I, I don't even know if I know this. Yeah, it was a Christmas special that I watched when I was a kid. Um, I think it might have been on Showtime. And there were a couple of other similar um, types of uh, shows that were like Halloween special. There was a Valentine's Day special. And they're, they're puppets, but they're like knockoff Muppets. They're not Jim Henson. And when I I didn't realize who was behind it until like I Like Fraggle started. Rock, although that was... Yeah, that was that Jim was the, That was Jim Henson. That was Jim Henson, though, right? Yeah, so... Yeah. But, 
So, so uh, Santa's magic toy bag was Paul Fusco. And does anybody know who Paul Fusco is? I have the, no idea. The, the creative genius behind the hit comedy, Alf. <laughs> no wonder you like this. <laughs> yeah. So, but I didn't uh. know that. I didn't know it was the Alf guy. But the Alf guy did it before he did Alf. He did a series of, uh, of, of like holiday puppet specials. And this was uh, you know, from 1984. Oh, I swear you know God. what I love about Matt, Josh? Here's what I love about Matt. I remember that I talked about a movie that I watched as a kid, right, that I enjoyed. But it was called Monster Squad, which I told you guys, you know, you really shouldn't listen. I loved it as a kid, but I'm sure it's going to hold up. It's not going to hold up. It's going to be terrible, right? And sure enough, you guys watched it, and it didn't hold up, and it was terrible. But that didn't mean that I didn't love it. I love that Matt still will watch a show now and still think it holds up with total sincerity so i don't know does it hold I, matt, up, you have matt, that childlike right? wonder no it, it doesn't hold i was hoping that it would hold up and it doesn't and cherry was just looking at me going this is terrible and i was just yeah. i was very i'm sad man i hate it when that happens that i just you know have this idea in my head and nostalgia actually, is a, a po potent drug yeah it is as we do it, as we do a podcast on albums <laughs> from the sixties, <laughs> which, which I, is it nostalgia if you weren't alive for it? So nope. you know, we, we so doesn't count for us. It's his, yeah, it's history, right? So we'll we'll say our, we're, we're going to be a historical review until well, I guess the eighties, but I don't yeah. even know if that qualifies. I think I actually Not really got, the nineties. I think I actually bought Josh a copy of Monster Squad for his birthday several years ago. Um, yeah. and I uh, really? more than several at this point, but yes. yeah, it was um, <laughs> it was not a good idea because. Uh, no, I'm good. sure. I oh, think you I sold. It? I think I ended up selling in a yard sale to cut down my DVD. <laughs> oh, there you go. You made some <laughs> so, money off me. Thanks. Yeah. But uh, like I did. I did. Forty-three watch cents. It for the record. There you go. Mm -hmm. Wolfman's got nards. It's a it's a well-respected mm. movie actually among the horror community. Is it really? Mm. Well, I wonder yeah. if Santa's magic toy oh, bag is well-respected amongst the Christmas uh, community. I cannot recommend that just on name alone. <laughs> and I, I think the, the amazing thing to me is you had Showtime in the mid-80s, Matt? I did. He was, yeah. Wow. I believe so. Yeah, we That's... had it early on. Showtime, whenever it was the first, when it first came on, I remember having it. And uh, wow. I think that's where it was. Wow. I think that's where it came from. And we had it taped on VHS. And um, yesterday was probably the first time I've seen it in like... 36 years <laughs> so, well yeah. we had a we had a pretty nice cable package but we never got like the hbo showtime channels so i'd only get those for about a week every year you know when they'd have the preview and it was mm -hmm. sort of like all the stuff you'd heard about so i've made up for it as a as a adult though <laughs> by getting as much tv as i can so how about you josh how you doing doing great almost the weekend in my mind and... so yeah <laughs> Oh, I'm, it's really exciting because Emily surprised us with a waffle maker today. So we're having waffles this weekend. Ooh. It's been a long, mm. uh, long time coming to make our own waffles. So that's very exciting. I feel like... I feel like every time we do these riffs at the beginning of the show, people are just peeling off as they hear about these exciting portions of our life. So waffles are very <laughs> exciting. Well, they yeah, they have their <laughs> moments, but I don't know if they're. Not a I don't know if they're. <laughs> I, I don't know if they're eyeball drivers. <laughs> I'm so, partial to French yeah. toast myself, and oh, okay. uh, I, I mean, do like French toast. Yeah, so. I have a good French toast recipe. It's it's involved though, but it's worth it. I think Gosh. it must. Let's Josh will post it on the uh, CTS Twitter account <laughs> to get more traffic there, more and we'll see just how much. We'll see how we'll see how much French toast and waffles drive the eyeballs, and then we'll have a 
definitive evidence. So, uh, well, you know what I'm excited about? We have uh, cleaning the stacks this week, and Josh has prepped me with the idea that he has a story this week for cleaning the stacks. So, after Outcast does their thing, let's hear from Josh and his story. All right, Josh, the floor is yours. Yeah, so my dad called. He was listening to last week's episode while putting up Christmas lights in the in the front of their house. And specifically... What better way to listen to CTS? Yeah. <laughs> I know, than doing Christmas lights. Not only that, he was listening to our discussion of Captain Beefheart and Trout Mask Replica, which he then proceeded to listen to Trout Mask Replica while putting up Christmas lights. <laughs> <laughs> of all albums for us to drive, it's the one album where they're like, you know, really, you shouldn't listen to this, even though our idea is to get you to listen I to know. it. I so. know. I thought it was hilarious that that album would be associated with putting up Christmas lights, but he did say he really appreciated our discussion on it because it made him at least come to the album with some like perspective and and preparedness as to what he was getting into and he i don't know if he necessarily enjoyed it he did say this that album was made for for people on drugs and lsd he thinks so john he totally (laughs) josh is pretty certain he's right josh's dad doesn't think much of your recommendations because if i recall you had a strong recommend recommendation not to recommend this that well it's it's the garden of eden concept right you know what i mean you just you can't lay off the forbidden apple so Mm mm-hmm um, well, well, there. I, it sounds like we have another non-endorsement of Trout Mask Replica. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'll be interested to see if we have anybody who who is willing to fight the good fight for I, I think uh, that, Trout Mask I think, Replica. I think that makes four now, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> if my math is correct. It's four. it's funny. It's funny because the people who do like it are like John Frusciante of like the Red Hot Chili Peppers and like David Lynch and just it's like <laughs> it's like a. a menagerie of folks that have had their own you know interesting struggles along the way so perhaps you had to have walked a a crooked path to truly understand that none of us are artists either like those people are artists also in that way also i did see you can buy a uh, musical saw on amazon for 80 bucks i saw it so Mm. i was contemplating sending that to matt so he could learn how to (laughs) I'm, I'm wondering a saw if for a musical saw for <laughs> yeah. christmas yeah i'm wondering in the world of musical saws if that's a good deal like is an 80 dollar musical saw like a good deal or is that expensive i mean know? who like, knows i'm just yeah i'm just imagining these poor delivery people who are overwhelmed like having to deliver a musical <laughs> saw to matt's risking matt's their lives in new england <laughs> <laughs> gotta have my saw oh, damn God. it all right, that's all for me. Well, what about you, Matt? I, <laughs> our our musical saw, Matt, has some things to do as well. I, I just have a quick one. Um, we were talking about last week the Beatles uh, al- album Help, and I neglected to mention, um, I didn't realize the stat, that Ticket to Ride was the first Beatles song that was recorded that goes over three minutes. Oh, and I, when I read that, I was like, I can't. So I went through every album, and it's true, with the exception of um, You've Really Got a Hold on Me, which comes in at 3.01. Um, and Tickets Ride was 310, but You Really Got a Hold on Me was actually a cover. So the true, cover, yeah, yep. by the first hmm. Beatles song, Tickets Ride was the first one that goes over three minutes. And um, I never knew that. I was so the first original composition. Yep. Yep. Wow. Interesting. And only the second overall that was on any proper album. And, and You Really Got a Hold on Me was just one second over. So um, they, they had concise. a lot of short songs. Yeah. yeah. It wouldn't last, though, because they'd have some longer ones along the way. I think, yeah. isn't, isn't Hey Jude? known for being the first song of 
Is it over five minutes? It's that's close to so seven, I think. On the it's, radio, it's, uh, yeah. If something, something about it, it like there was a mark of they recorded over a certain mark that in right. pop music you weren't supposed to go over. I want to say it was five minutes, but that's a cleaning the stacks for another. That week sounds about right. Well, do, that's a different album that we we're going to do the white yeah, album. Oh, well, actually, album. It's, yeah. no, it's not on the white album. That's a single. So what's um, the longest? I was going to say it's not on any album. Is, is it, it no. uh, Revolution Nine? Is that the longest Beatles song? Ooh, well that's. Uh, maybe i mean that's not really a song i mean probably the r- longest proper song is i want you she's so heavy off yeah. abbey road that's a long mm-hmm. that's a long track but um cool. but yeah first song over three minutes take it to ride it's a good trivia there question go. right there yeah it sure is well that's a good one and matt continues to find ways to continue to make the beatles relevant and lord knows he's gonna have to because we cover oh, about nine more beatles albums this and I, I, i'm so. not done either i got more for for this episode left so uh i Beat in this facts. oh well, we're not even covering the beatles so that's no, i know but i feel like we're gonna chase off all we're right just... well they always do <laughs> we're just gonna so. start replacing songs with beetle facts instead for our opening well it's it's funny because we mentioned uh lsd and we're gonna start with the pink floyd album <laughs> to start which was credited to lsd if i remember correctly but matt will i'm sure just clue a... us in on that the piper at the tab. gates of dawn yep so Piper of the Gates of Dawn is going to be our first segment by Pink Floyd, their debut album. Um, I will take over number two from a band, and earlier Matt said a quick one, a band that made an album at one point called A Quick One, The Who, Tommy, one of the most well-known albums of the 60s. And then Josh will be taking us a little bit off the beaten path into Nick Drake's catalog, Five Leaves Left, will be our final segment. So segment number three, and I know that's a very influential album with a lot of musicians. So I think it's going to be three pretty fun segments. Um, I won't belabor it anymore. I think it's probably time for segment number one, Pink Floyd, Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Matt, the floor is yours. All right. So um, this is uh, Piper at the Gates of Dawn. And the in the intro montage, we heard Interstellar Overdrive. And now we're going to hear a clip from Bike. Bike. All right, so that was Bike uh, from uh, the Pink Floyd's debut album, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, which was um, comes in at number 27 on the best ever albums list of the albums top 100 albums of the 60s. It was released in 1967, and it was the eighth ranked album of that year and 158 of all time. It was recorded um, between the months of February and May of 1967 and released on August 4th of that year. It was produced by Norman Smith, who we've we've talked about before. He uh, has produced. He was he was uh, worked with the Beatles, and he worked with um, the Pretty Things. If you remember, we talked about them way back earlier on. Norman Smith was uh, very prominent around this time, working with a variety of bands. And actually, as we were speaking about the Beatles before, they did record this record at the same time that the Beatles were recording Sgt. Pepper. And at one point, the they were the band was invited to watch the Beatles actually record. Uh, lovely Rita. Um, 
So the title of the album, which incidentally I, is one of my favorite titles of al- of any album, I I think that's just a very Piper at the Gates of Dawn. It's, just it's sounds a, like a yeah evocative title. It's just yeah, it's cool. Um, it comes from. Does anybody know where it comes from? No, I was it's wondering. mythology, isn't it? Uh, in a sense, yes, but in part. But it, it's it's really taken from. Um, Kenneth Graham's uh, 1908 novel, The Wind, oh, of, the Wind of the Willows. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So this was one of Sid Barrett's favorite favorite books, and the book contains a visionary encounter with the god Pan, who plays mm. his Pan pipe at dawn, and so that oh, was yeah, the inspiration okay. for the Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Um, I remember hearing that hearing that book when I was in like first grade, if I remember correctly, which it seemed a little bit adult for first grade, but yeah. 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 Um, so this is considered a psychedelic rock album, as John, you alluded to that a little while ago. Um, although at the time, the mm-hmm. uh, record company EMI tri- tried to downplay the role that psychedelics and the underground scene had on Pink Floyd, uh, putting out a pref- press release stating that, quote, the Pink Floyd does not know what people mean by psychedelic pop and are not trying to cre- create hallucinatory effects on their audiences, which might be the biggest lie in the history of yeah, rock that's music. It's like, that is not true. No. Um, so uh, other outlets specifically called out the band for catering directly to drug users. Um, but uh, interestingly enough, the only member of the band that actually used the drug was uh, found was Sid Barrett. And um, that's going to certainly lead to his demise. So we did cover, I did do a little bit of the history uh, of Pink Floyd back in, uh, I don't know how many episodes it was ago. It was a while back when we did their second album, uh, A Saucer Full of Secrets, which Josh affectionately referred to as A Saucer Full of Garbage. That was episode 10. Episode 10. Thank you, Josh. Uh, Clean that stack real quick. So... Um, but so we're just going to mainly talk about the, the the record here, and I have a couple of other stats to talk about. Uh, the album was recorded with long, longer, both longer improvisations that were reminiscent of the live shows that they were doing at the time, as well as uh, shorter songs, mainly written by Sid Barrett. So EMI was did the the deal that they signed with EMI. Um, it wasn't favorable in many ways in terms of, you know, in, in terms of compensation, uh, but it was favorable to the band in allowing them a lot of uh, freedom to do what they wanted to in the studio. And one of the reasons for that was because the band or the uh, the record label really wasn't sure what type of band they actually signed, which I, I don't know, I just find it interesting that we hear some of these stories about these bands that are getting signed by record labels and the record labels are surprised by what they've ended up signing you know we heard that with frank zappa a little bit in the mothers of invention and um i I don't know if it was kind of like we're trying to just get the next best thing and we'll just you know you know throw a bunch of darts at a wall and see what sticks or or what but um but it does happen enough you know a couple times certainly in the in the podcast that we've covered uh, so the the producer Norman Smith does recount that Barrett was very difficult to work with in the studio, and he was uh, he he described Barrett as being unresponsive to Smith's suggestions and constructive criticism, whereas Roger Waters and keyboardist uh, Rick Wright were much more receptive to his attempts to jam with them and to try to develop a relationship. Uh, Norman Smith said that he just later realized that any attempts to connect with Barrett were just a waste of time. Uh, however, Smith did. Have, his influence was felt into a certain degree because he was the one that really drove the band to, you know, convince the band to ditch more of the psychedelic, um, long, 
<laughs> longer jams and uh, improvisational songs to and, and to include more of the shorter songs on the album, which most of this album is. It's 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 not what you would see later on with Pink Floyd and, and kind of like long, drawn out, almost proggy songs. There's This is more straightforward in terms of structure and time, uh, not kind of going all over the place. Uh, so um, he did have that influence on that record there. Uh, so leading up to the album's release, we did talk about this a little bit in the first episode with Pink Floyd. Sid Barrett started to deteriorate and would not play during live shows. He would sometimes just stand on the stage motionless, or sometimes he would walk, wander around. He wouldn't sing. And as a result, as I mentioned in the previous podcast, they did have to cancel their U.S. tour and a number of shows. Uh, they tried, The band tried to get Barrett to see a psychologist, but that didn't really work out. But they did finally perform uh, in the United States on November 4th in 1967 at the Winterland Ballroom, and they followed Big Brother and the Holding Company, so another CTS uh, band that we have covered before. Way back on episode one. Number one. You got it. And a couple more things. Yep, the album. Pretty Things were two for those looking. Yep. Was that an episode? No, that was episode two, wasn't it? Yeah, that's what he said. Episode two, that's what oh, I said. episode two, okay. Yep. Um, so the album yep. cover was shot by photographer Vic Singh, who used the prison lens given to him by George Harrison, who gave the which gave the effect that you see on the album cover, and it was designed to resemble an LSD trip. Some have suggested that this is a concept album, but the only reason that I could come up with why some people think of that is because people say, well, I can't really figure out one song to play. I need to play this album the whole way through which I think is a really weak argument for considering something a concept album. Uh, but um, so, yeah, so this is really the only record that we get that is pretty much Sid Barrett. Um, every song on this with a couple, there's one Roger Waters song. There's a couple of the instrumental songs are credited to the whole band, but the overwhelming majority of the songs are Sid Barrett songs. And for anybody that, you know, knows later Pink Floyd stuff, this is a very different album than what they would do later on in the seventies. That would make them this, you know, internationally, you know, acclaimed band, one of the best selling bands of all time. So, um, so this might be a little bit of a, um, of a different sound or a little bit of a shock for some people. Uh, and so I'm going to start with, uh, for opinions, I want to start with John, because I'm curious to know, I know how you think about Pink Floyd overall, but this is different than what you're used to and what Pink Floyd is known for. So what is your take on this record, John? You know how I was surprised by how much I like Pink Floyd's second album? It was kind of one of those things where everybody was shocked because I gave it a slight thumbs up the second album i do remember that. yeah not the case with this not the case with <laughs> this one this was everything i think of in terms of what's hard for me to get into with pink floyd there's just the thing that sometimes is difficult for me with pink floyd is there's just isn't anything i can sink my teeth into in a pink floyd album um everything just sort of floats by nothing congeals into something that gives me a emotional reaction i know that it's um what about a it's mouse easy and, and without a house named gerald you don't think yeah. that <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's easy to stereotype pink floyd as a drug band and i don't want to be that lazy because i that's a lazy description but as much as you're gonna call pink floyd a, a drug band like this is the album that would be like argument one for that it's just um nothing really stands out it just floats together it it's played well enough but there's no virtuoso playing um there is no strong and, and nothing this. nothing that interests yeah nothing really interests me it, it just kind of floats by I, I can't say it's bad but 
it's when I, I used to joke around all the time with with Matt and, and to some degree Josh, but certainly Matt, because I know his feelings on Pink Floyd. And I would say that, you know, at its worst, Pink Floyd is the band that always won the the vote at the planetarium by all the stoners to listen to when, you know, we'd have like six different options for laser shows and there'd be all these great bands, right? Like laser ACDC, laser U2, laser Beatles and Pink Floyd would win because the stoners would get <laughs> together and they do drugs and they'd watch the planetarium. And like those 25% of people, Pink Floyd and the planetarium was profound. And for the other 75% of people, Pink Floyd was laborious to say the least. And, this album was like the personification of that feel with them. I, mm. I can't say that everybody wasn't proficient on their instruments, but nothing, unlike other albums that we've talked about and we'll talk about, and even this episode, we'll talk about nothing stands out in the musicianship. And I know Pink Floyd well enough later to know that, you know, members of the band can play their instruments, you know, maybe not at a virtuoso level or a standout level, but this just everything muddled together and, um, it wasn't an unpleasant listen. It just was bleh. like, that's the best way I can describe it. But I, I'm interested to hear you guys, if you enjoyed this cell, I, I don't get the feeling from what Josh has chirped in with that he's going to feel much different than I do, but maybe Matt will have a, a different opinion. But Josh, what do you think? Yeah, unfortunately, this album did not change my mind on Pink Floyd uh, so far. And I really didn't like this album i i think i was i, I listened to it three times because i keep trying to like find something to grasp onto or to clarify the reasons why i don't like the band and or, or why it's not working for me it's just not one of those bands that i'm responding to i think part of it is the fact that it's so blatantly like druggy and druggy and psychedelic and like the nonsense way like the lewis carroll alice in wonderland way um, you know, songs about the gnome and the bike and the silly lyrics about the bikes. And even that song flaming, which I hate, um, has yippee in it. He's like, yippee, you can't see me or whatever, whatever he says. And, um, the different, the different, uh, weird, like psychedelic sounds that they put in the, that repetition of doy, doy, doy on the power ta H or however you pronounce it. <laughs> Um, I, I can't get in with that. And even, even in comparison to the last album where I remember saying that there were certain parts where it sounded like it was going to go in one direction, like with a cool guitar part or something. And then it didn't do that. And I didn't get, I didn't even get that here. There was a really, I like the opening of Lucifer Sam, which is the second song. And that's just kind of like this cool guitar repetition repetitious uh guitar part but nothing else really s stood out to me or there wasn't really anything um that i liked unfortunately mm. even silly songs like the the one about the doctor the stethoscope one uh take take up thy stethoscope and walk it was kind of catchy but the lyrics just then pushed me back um away from it so the, they the, sing so clearly too that's the other <laughs> thing you can't kind of can't ignore the lyrics because yeah. you hear all of them which is normally a positive attribute but in this case i feel doesn't do any fate i i feel like josh you and i embodied the same body to listen to this album because it sounds like we had the exact same take on this album because you could be speaking as me with that yeah i matt what do you what do you think about this and 
kind of I guess as a broader you know discussion of Pink Floyd what do you what do you like about the band or what am I missing I guess all right so well in first... fairness Josh this sounds nothing like later Pink Floyd so oh, yeah. I will say that. say that it, last yeah. time too yeah but yeah so I, I first I'm just curious to know John John you said you knew this album leading into this right like this wasn't the first listen uh, for you I had listened to it years and years ago. Um, okay. I certainly haven't listened to it nearly as much as, you know, 1970s Pink Floyd or even, you know, the nostalgia Pink Floyd from the late 80s, you know, when The Wall and stuff was coming in um, or back again, right? Uh, so I don't know it as well, but I remember listening to it at another stage of my life and not being drawn into it and trying to give it another listen since I did uh, somewhat enjoy Saucerful of secrets but uh yeah it just didn't do it man and josh you didn't know that you you didn't know it at all okay no i hadn't heard any of these songs yeah so um so i'll preface it by saying that i came to this album years after being becoming familiar with their bigger albums like uh you know dark side of the moon and wish you were here and animals in particular the wall the wall to an extent but but particularly those other three albums so um and i heard so much about this and i was like okay well this is like you know people say some people say this is their best album right and this is it's a totally different thing so i when i got the album and i've had it for years and i i knew it pretty well i didn't have to listen to it a ton this past week um and i i was very taken aback i was very confused i didn't know what to make of it um but i have listened to this record a lot over the years and um i do like it so it's it's not my favorite pink floyd album um but I, I do appreciate it for, for what it is for the time that it came out. I think the Sid Barrett story is very interesting. Um, and the, and I would say this is one of those records for me that the more I've listened to it, the more I've appreciated it. I totally get why you, what you guys are saying and why you don't like it. This is not a album I would recommend, you know, a, a, a novice to start with. This is not the Floyd album that you would, this is a, this is a, you know, a different level, but, um, but it's cool knowing where they go it's cool to kind of go back to this and see, you know, where they started and, and, and what Sid Barrett was doing. And I do like, you know, <laughs> what he's doing. It's kind of ridiculous. He's kind of like a child. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of these lyrics are kind of like either they're either nostalgic or they are, you know, talking about, yeah, like the gnome. It's like this medieval kind of thing. Matilda Mother is basically a song about, you know, it, it's, it's, it's like a thing about nostalgia where he is trying to get his mother to tell him more about the story. He's trying to recapture something up from his youth, but it doesn't really work out. And then a lot of the songs go into this trippy, these trippy breakdowns and, you know, very psychedelic um, types of sounds that at the time were, were very different and groundbreaking. Um, but it, it definitely sounds dated, right? This sounds like, you know, Josh, you mentioned Lucifer Sam. I, I, I like that song a lot. And that's to me sounds like something that would be an Austin Powers, you know, that like mm. that guitar part would be yeah. something from, you know, something like that. Um, but even that's like a silly song. That's about his cat, right? His, 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 his cat was Sam and his cat was basically a, a pain in the ass. So he called Lucifer Sam, you know? Um, so, uh, but there's some really cool stuff on here. Like Interstellar Overdrive is by far the longest track on this record. And it's, it might be the most famous and or important song on the record. It's either that or um, the opening track, which is, uh, I have to say this way, astro- it's Astronomy, Do- Astronomy Domine. And for years, until this week, in my head, when I read that title, I was like, Astronomy Domine. And I'm like, what the heck is Domine? And I'm like, oh, and then I read about it. I'm like, oh, it's Latin. It's Domine. Yeah. So that, <laughs> I'm a dumbass, right? Because I don't read. Um, so, but Interstellar Overdrive, uh, you know, 
I love that guitar riff. I think that's got a really cool part. It's one of those songs that's that that it starts well and it ends well, and the and the middle part is a bunch of just very yeah. reminiscent of this like freeform jazz experimentation, you know, jam. Um, and that's it gets a little bit much. It's like a the the, the song's a little over nine minutes. Um, but to me, it's just I, I I pick up on things. Josh, you mentioned you didn't like flaming. I like the guitar. I think the acoustic guitar part in that is is really good, and the way and it and it. The way that they mix it, I think as the song goes on, they bring that a little bit, that sound a little bit more prominently um, as it goes on. And I like that a lot. Um, so, you know, again, I, I wouldn't say I love this record, but I do like it. Um, and I, but I've listened to it for many years. And, you know, this week when I, you know, had the headphones on, I was listening to it more intently. Yeah, I, I, I did like it a lot. Um, and, you know, bike makes me laugh. You know, he's basically talking about, I've got a bike. You can ride it if you like, but it's not my, I, I'd give it to you, but I can't cause I borrowed it. You know, like yeah. it's just these really simplistic lyrics that just make you laugh. And, um, yeah, Barrett was an interesting dude, man. And a lot of people see this as being the genius of Sid Barrett. Um, you know, and I, I don't think that I'm quite as much there as other people are, but, uh, you know, but I, I do like the record. Um, it's 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 very never interesting. has never has Matt not being a lyrics guy been more pronounced than in this segment right here. <laughs> oh, the lyrics are dumb. I can yeah. I could fully admit that they're very dumb, and that has nothing. It's very slightly to do with what I like about it because when it, it does make me laugh, and I you know it's just it's the ridiculous nature of some of them this, make me laugh. This does kind of veer into that area though, where sometimes as much as I can like seventies prog rock, the, all the talk about warlocks and, you know, fantasy characters and ancient mythology and stuff like that. Um, you know, you can trace a lot of it back to this and those themes, you know, Led Zeppelin is another band that pie, you know, goes into that mm-hmm. well often with those mm-hmm. themes. So, um, and folk music also loves those things. So, um, if you like those types of music, um, you may like this as well. John, what's the uh, what band do you like the most that that does those types of lyrics? That that what what offends you the least, or is it you know what I mean? Or is it like can it you doesn't get offend past me? That ever? Uh, it's, it's like this album, for example, doesn't offend me at all. I, I just it's just not my cup of tea, as you'd say. Mm. Um, there's, I mean. We're going to have so much to talk about with that type of stuff in the 70s, Matt, that I, I want to save okay. those bullets in my gun until we get there because, you know, it'll it'll give me plenty to talk about when we get there. But uh, sort of that, like, mythology-driven um, lyricism doesn't always hit with me. Mm. Gotcha. I think, I think I don't respond to, like, the, the dreamlike nature mm-hmm. or, like, playful nature of the lyrics. Um for some reason with with this type of psychedelic music yeah mm-hmm. just off-putting to me can either of you uh pick which which song was the roger Waters song so that's oh that's a good question um was it flaming no was it chapter okay. 24 no it's it and that's why i wanted to ask to see if you knew because it, it blows my mind that it's this it's it's take up thy stethoscope and walk <laughs> is oh, wow. the roger Waters song which I mean, Roger Waters. That doesn't sound anything like what Roger no. Waters would write later. Yeah. No, and he was the prom- He was the main songwriter after Barrett left. You know. Right. So that's what like, I'm saying. Yeah. It, has it doesn't to do even sound direction. like. It doesn't even sound like Saucer Full of Secrets, which sounds very different yeah. than this album, and that's because Sid Barrett was on it less, right? It's. Oh yeah, he he really yeah. wrote really one song on that. You know, um, that was mostly Waters and Wright that that wrote those songs. Um, it's almost like 
the the stethoscope song was Roger Waters trying to be Sid Barrett. You know, it's just mm. like let me see if I yeah. can do something that's kind of you know wonky and, and whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I I would pr- if I hadn't listened to this album so much, you know, because I did. This was one like I focused on for a while because I'm like, what am I missing? It was when, <laughs> when I was in college, and I'm like, I'm supposed to like this, right? So I need <laughs> so I need to listen to. This. So I spent a lot of time with it, and uh, as time went on, I do I liked it more. Uh, but it's not, yeah, it's not this Floyd album that I would point you to. We're gonna, we're certainly gonna get. It's gonna be well, a while because their their albums are ranked pretty highly in the seventies. But um, well, uh, and you know what's interest? What's interesting? They did a song that's kind of goofy on Saucer Full of Secrets, that Corporal Clegg song, which actually I really liked. But that to me was a much more formed, and accessible, likable track than anything here. I would say. Even I, even yeah. uh even Sid Barrett's song on that album Jug Band Blues I like better than anything on this album. I, I will say this though, if I compare this to like another straight up psychedelic album that we've covered, the Thirteenth Floor Elevators, I think one of the things I appreciate about this much more so than that one, I to me this one is much more varied in the sounds. It's it's I felt like um, a lot of the Thirteenth Floor Elevators was just one single track kind of doing the same thing over and over again and i thought that there was more even though it's very psychedelic but there's still variety in here there's different there's a lot of different things going on and so i found that being a little bit more interesting but, um of a listen but but compared to something like the united states of america i think that oh, yeah. is way yeah. more varied than this and interesting on numerous fronts for me so yes. i i see you on the 13th floor elevators and agree because i actually would rank this album higher than that but compared to some psychedelic that i I liked like the Jefferson Airplane album and the United States of America. This like isn't even in the same ballpark, in my opinion. Those albums just had more. I didn't feel like I had to be in an altered state to appreciate those albums in the way that I felt like I had to on this one, the 13th Floor Elevators. Mm. And I think maybe that's what it is. Like, can you listen to a psychedelic album without doing drugs while listening to it? That to me is, I guess, the threshold. (laughs) Yeah, that might be. You might hit the nail on the head there for there's probably some there's some demarcation line between that type of music and once you go over the line i'm like i'm out sorry well Mm -hmm. yeah i i get it i i wasn't on lsd when i listened to this nor have i ever been but i still do like it um but so yeah i i think your opinions are quite valid and i get them um i think this is also this this album to me straddles that line of like you hear soap this is like highly regarded it's been critically acclaimed it's all this you know and um and on the one hand i like it but on the other hand i'm like all right slow down i'll pump the brakes a little bit on that you know it's it's but um yeah. maybe it has to do something with you know at the time that it came out nothing was like this right this was just you know this groundbreaking type of album but we see that a lot anyway so um couple other just quick things, particularly about Interstellar Overdrive. Uh, we were talking last week about how things seem What's, can to... I, can I add oh, one thing, ahead. though, real yeah. quick to that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, like, was, was this groundbreaking, though? Because this came out at the same time as Sgt. Pepper's, and to me, Sgt. Pepper trod some of the same ground like a thousand times more successfully. Well, this like, was, if this album yeah. was never created and Sgt. Pepper was created, doesn't Sgt. Pepper scratch that itch? You not know, as like, much. Not as. I mean, Sergeant Pepper was a couple no? of months. Cup uh, came out a couple of months before this, but they were basically recording around the same time. Um, I mean, Sergeant Pepper certainly. Listen, it's not like Sergeant Pepper wouldn't have been influential if Pink Floyd hadn't come out with this a couple of months later. I'm not saying that at all. But this was this is a little bit of a different type of psychedelic. This was. A, 
they went they went harder into that psychedelia than than they did in Sgt. Pepper. And I'm sure that there are musicians and people out there that gravitated more towards this than they did with Sgt. Pepper because they maybe they were amazed by Sgt. Pepper and then they saw this and they're like, holy crap, like this is because Sgt. Pepper was still very much grounded in a lot of pop and a lot of rock that was very familiar. And this was just like, what the heck are they doing? This was a much more in some ways, oh, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know if I want to say it was more experimental, but but they went harder at the psychedelia, I would say, in this Definitely. record than they did in Sgt. Pepper. Yes, I would say so. What is so? Yeah, I just but yeah. Uh, I would I would say it's a matter of the. Well, we can have that another time. I just think it's an accessibility thing. I don't think that Sgt. Pepper was any less experimental than this. It's just that the Beatles wrote better songs. Like, oh yeah. Oh no. To no, me, no. that's yes. what it is. It's like yeah. it's like, are you rooted in songs that most people like, or are you mm-hmm. sort of? And, hell, and and you know what my biggest argument is, Matt? They would go into themes that were like psychedelic in later Pink Floyd and be a thousand times more accessible because yes. they were just yes. better songs, this, you know. And that's kind of how I feel about this. Yeah. This is more weird than it was accessible. Right. Yes, so, um, and I, I, I would agree with that. The Beatles were better songwriters, right? I mean, that's, I, I'm not going to get that argument for me. So, um, but this was, yeah, I don't know. This was just, um, it was, they, they, they laid more into the, 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 the psychedelia, I would say. Um, but I, I found it um, interesting. We were talking about last week about how things, dur- doing this podcast, weird things, just coincidental things just appear to happen. And I had another one of those moments earlier this week. I've been, working on a project of watching all the Marvel movies because I have Disney Plus and I get all the Marvel movies. And so I was, yeah. well, I'm on Doctor, I was on Doctor Strange and I watched that earlier yeah. this week. And all of a sudden, in the, one of the early scenes in that movie, they start playing the riff from Interstellar Overdrive. And I'm like, hmm. oh, hey, you know, that, that's interesting. I'm covering that album on my podcast this week. Um, and also, that was a song that the band performed once with the accompaniment of one Frank Zappa who joined them on stage at one point to play uh, to, to, to play the song. And um, there was a quote from, uh, where is it? Uh, from uh, Nick Mason, the drummer, uh, praised him saying that Zappa is really one of those rare musicians that can play with us. The little he did was terribly correct. So he high praise from uh, Nick Mason. So I was like, yeah, bringing it back. Frank Zappa rocking out with uh, nice. Pink Floyd on Interstellar Overdrive. So one of um, one of the few men who can play with him from the '60s. Yes, because we've he, we've seen <laughs> such a shortage of people that can really play their instruments like such titans as Pink Floyd. So they had yeah. their uh, they had high standards, John. They didn't they didn't. I'm just sure set up I'm for sure nothing. some luminaries some some luminaries in the last week like you know. Paul McCartney on bass or Keith Moon on drums or Eric Clapton on guitar, you know, they could never have hung with, you know, the tight unit that was early Pink Floyd. They're not the same. They're not on the same wavelength as Zappa and Pink Floyd, man. No, (laughs) they're different levels. So (laughs) anyway, so that wraps that up. I'm going to talk a little bit. So this is the really the only Josh, when when we do Pink Floyd in the 70s, there's no more uh, Sid Barrett. And um, I'd be I'm very interested to hear what your take will be on those records because they are very different. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about the, uh, the the ultimate demise of Sid Barrett later on, because he does appear, even though he's not really in the band anymore after this. Uh, he does appear as one of the focal point focal themes of a uh, latter Pink Floyd album that we will be covering. So we can uh, we'll wrap that up then. Yeah, it looks like the next album we talk about is metal, metal. from wish... 1971. So. I wish we were there, Matt. So I wish I was there too, John. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, little tidbit there. So 
um, teaser, shall we say. So, all right, I guess it's time for me to talk about Tommy by The Who, isn't it? Tommy, can you hear me? And it, Yes, <laughs> and if, if you want to hear a tidbit before I introduce the, uh, the segments, uh, this is one of my mom's favorite albums, so I want to shout out this segment to her. And my mom actually was the singing voice for her CYO's performance of Tommy, despite the fact that she was female. It was progressive, I guess, before its time. Uh, my mom was the singing voice for Tommy in the CYO of Trenton's 1970 production of, the, of Tommy by The Who. At CYO? The that they performed... Yes, Catholic Youth Organization, Matt. Oh, so, okay. uh, wow. yeah, the youth group for so so this one. Uh, they this did this one was a, Catholics a big, did and this my mom, performance. Mom, actually, my mom, they well, that was the Jesuits. You know what I mean? There used to be <laughs> oh, progressive okay, Catholics right. back in the day. So, <laughs> and uh, and my mom and dad have seen Tommy performed in person several times. So I know I'm the person wow. who least tends to talk about family connections, but uh, the Who are a shared love of both of my parents, um, especially this album. So anyway, uh, the Who is the uh, the Who Tommy is the fourth Who excuse me the third Who album that we've done and their fourth studio album. You know, uh, you can dig back in the archives for Who the Who sell out or Who sells out I should say, and uh, Who sings My Generation uh, in earlier segments. Uh, this was released on May twenty third, nineteen sixty nine, and comes in with a robust run length of seventy five minutes and fifteen seconds, thus making it Josh's favorite recording technique, the double album. Uh, this, uh, if you haven't figured this out already, and this is going to be a theme when The Who goes into anything that's called a rock opera uh, and a lot of their songwriting, you guys probably can guess, but I'll throw it out there. Who composes things that are called rock operas for The Who? Matt, who composes them? Uh, uh, Pete Townsend. Yes. You got it. <laughs> Whenever was, there's something well, that is, I'll, 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 whether it be was, the Who Sells Out, a concept album, or this, or Quadrophenia, you know, you it's it always Pete Townsend. No, I'll be honest. I, yep. was trying to th- I was trying to think of Pete Townsend's driver, that slippy, slappy guy, whatever we talked about, whatever that Skippy. Yep. He did a song, yeah. and I was trying to think of that name, but I couldn't come up with it. Speedy, so I just speedy, speedy Keen. I was try- speedy Keen. Yep, there you go. I was trying to, I was trying to so. do that. It didn't work, so I'm sorry. Sorry, man. So we, that was well. That was my attempt to bring you guys into it. I'll go back into doing a a, a long, cold read right here. Don't forget. Uh, so the, go uh, ahead, Josh. The songs. You didn't introduce the songs yet. Oh, okay. I try. Oh, I, let me introduce this. Ah, oh, jeez, oh man. Okay. Well, the song that I'm gonna play before before this is gonna be Pinball Wizard, which you may have heard of. And the song in the opening montage was uh, "I'm Free." So here you go. All right, thanks, Josh, for doing that so we don't have to hear your omniscient voice come in and, Josh, and remediate a, me along the way. A, you had a, like a two- or three-week stretch there without Josh yeah. having to interrupt that. So I know. We can see if I get through that and the, the closing and not screw that up. That's my two um, white whales in terms of too long this. into it before. <laughs> well, it's good you came in, Josh, because I was about to ask the following question. Would you like me to give you a couple-paragraph synopsis of the plot of this album? I can't wait. Would you like it or should I just leave it alone? All right, no, no, so I'll try it. my do best it. to make this. A- so it's important to know that this storyline of this uh, album, which has often 
been sort of maligned for not being necessarily the most coherent storyline, which is something when you hear concept albums in 1960s tends to be something that often comes with it, as, you know, we've covered SF Sorrow by The Pretty Things and some other concept albums. And, you know, the plot gets lost at certain times. But uh, Townsend was following a guy by the name of Mahir Baba at this time, who was a spiritual leader who basically called himself God on Earth. And he stayed a practitioner uh, of his teachings I, I think to this very day, he still subscribes to some of them, but certainly throughout the 70s and 80s. And so this was his attempt at taking uh, Mr. Baba's teachings and turning them into music. So here is, and it's never been described by Townsend exactly what the plot is, but here's what, as much as, you know, can be hashed out what people have sort of collectively thought the synopsis of the album is. British Army Captain Walker goes missing during an expedition and is believed dead, and that is what's covered in the song Overture. His wife, Mrs. Walker, gives birth to their son, Tommy, the song It's a Boy. Years later, Captain Walker returns home and discovers that his wife has found a new lover. The captain kills the lover in an altercation. Tommy's mother then brainwashes him into believing he didn't see or hear anything, shutting down his senses and making him deaf, dumb, and blind to the outside world. 1921. That's the song, 1921. Tommy now realizes, uh, relies on his sense of touch and imagination, developing a fascinating inner psyche, which is covered in amazing journey and sparks. A quack doctor claims his wife can cure Tommy, as covered in the song The Hawker, while Tommy's parents are increasingly frustrated that he will never find religion in the midst of his isolation, covered in Christmas. They begin to neglect him, leaving him to be tortured by his sadistic cousin Kevin and molested by his uncle Ernie. Fiddle about is the song that covers that. The hawker's drug-addicted wife, as covered in The Acid Queen, gives Tommy a dose of LSD, causing a hallucinogenic experience that is expressed musically in Underture. And we'll talk about Underture, but when you know that's what it is, it definitely gives it another layer. As Tommy grows older, he discovers that he can feel vibrations sufficiently well enough to become an expert pinball player, pinball wizard. His parents take him to a respected doctor song there's a doctor who determines that the boy's disabilities are psychosomatic rather than physical tommy is told by the doctor to go to the mirror as expressed in that track and his doctors notice he can stare at his reflection after seeing tommy spend extended periods staring at a mirror in the house his mother smashes it out of frustration as covered in the song smash the mirror this removes tommy's mental block and he recovers his senses realizing he can become a powerful leader of men as covered in sensation. He starts a religious movement, I'm Free, which generates fervor amongst its adherents, such as Sally Simpson, and expands into a holiday camp, Welcome slash Tommy's Holiday Camp, the song. However, Tommy's followers ultimately reject his teachings and leave the camp, as covered in We're Not Gonna Take It. Tommy retreats inward again, as seen in See Me, Feel Me, with his continuing statement of wonder at what encompasses him. End of parable. Did you guys get all that as you listened to it the first time around? Nope. Wow. I, I will say this. I, that was... I, I have known this album for a while. I always thought, I never knew that it was a psychosomatic thing. I thought he was just born deaf, dumb, and blind. Yeah, like a Helen too. Keller type thing. Oh, yeah, no, no. Yeah, no, it's definitely, if you listen to the lyrics, uh, and I, you, you can tell that they allude to it being psychosomatic mm. multiple times. Yep. I think that a lot of people just know that, you know, that deaf, dumb, blind kid sure plays a mean pit, you know, and that's kind of what yeah. you lock into, but yep. there's a lot of songs before you get there. Yep. So, well, anyway, 20 million people bought this album over the years, and it is in the Grammy <laughs> Hall of Fame. The album took six months to make, leading to a long period of touring where they toured throughout all of 1969, 
and all of 1970 and played this album at Woodstock, the Isle of Wight Festival in both 1969 and 1970, and the Met Opera House. They also brought this back at multiple times during their career and played it full length um, in the 70s and the 80s at different times and would sprinkle songs in during live performances all the way up through the 2000s. A couple other things. Uh, Tommy also was Townsend trying to co-opt the three-minute pop single format that The Who, he felt had kind of gotten stale with. And so this was his attempt to sort of subvert that. Um, At the time this album was released, the band was kind of in a commercial drought, which we talked about a little bit in The Who Sell Out. Um, They were still, it was kind of like the kinks where they were successful, but they were kind of looked at as maybe their time had passed as a revolutionary band. So this was was an attempt to bring back relevance. and it worked because it was extremely popular with critics and fans um, pretty much immediately. And uh, Townsend did say the album was designed to be consciously different specifically than what the Beatles were doing and the Beach Boys in the the Pet Sounds type era of stuff. Uh, and that it would be specifically designed to be played live. And if you remember, the Beach Boys were not really playing live. Brian Wilson wasn't out there and the Beatles really weren't touring a lot uh, by 1969 either. At so all. he made this to be... Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So he made this to be played live, uh, and all the songs had that in mind. Um, You may uh, notice the French horn is in this album. It's played by John Entwistle, as well as the organ and the piano, which uh, Townsend played. And also, this is the debut of Keith Moon playing his brand new double bass drum kit. And you hear him play the double bass drum kit Mm. a lot in this. His fills and uh, the... The way that he hits the drums, it sounds very different, uh, certainly than the albums we've heard before. But you may not recognize it because so much of The Who's um, big anthemic songs have that brand new double bass drum kit. So if you were familiar more with 1970s Who, it's going to sound familiar to you. But if you know if you go back and look at 60s Who, this is where Keith Moon becomes sort of that like massive towering sound that he would have that's the double uh bass drum kit um a couple anecdotes about it uh uh the song pinball wizard was actually specifically tailored for new york times critic nick Cohn, who was known to be a pinball fan and the band sort of unabashedly said that they wrote it hoping that the uh the new york times would give the album a positive review (laughs) um it uh it actually (laughs) this album this album allowed the who to clear their debt and in clearing their debts they no longer really had to listen to their record company and they credited uh that with not having to do what the record company said and uh townsend and daltrey both said that that is ultimately what led to albums like who's next quadrophenia who by numbers and who are you their next four albums and they say that they don't think they would ever been able to make those albums uh Mm. if they hadn't uh, been able to clear their debts so they can thank tommy for that uh this hit number two in the uk and number seven in the u.s uh, in 1969, and then it re-entered the charts in 1970 and hit number four at that time. Um, there are, while many of the critics liked it, there were some critics that did not like it, thinking that it was sort of overwrought and overly long. Uh, and to this day, this is probably the Who album that draws the most um, non-consensus, I would say, in terms of some people think it's it's brilliant. Uh, some people think that it's it's ponderous, and some people think that it's of its time, and some people think that it's timeless. Um, so I'm actually really interested to hear what you guys think of this, because uh, this is a lot different than a lot of what The Who had done before this, and it's different than what they do after, but does share some similarities. 
Uh, Josh, maybe let's start with you. What were your thoughts on Tommy? Well, as you guys know, I had, I had never listened to this album before and only knew Pinball Wizard. And That's why I, I start with you. I am decidedly in the camp of overwrought and of its time and okay. overrated, in my opinion. I really failed to connect with this album as well. And I found it borderline offensive at times because oh, wow. of okay. the idea about for some reason about them writing about the characters as if they were third person, as opposed to the depth I'm a blind person being first person, you know, writing from the outside versus writing as the character, maybe Um, for some reason that stuck with me. And I don't care about Tommy through this story. And I don't find his journey interesting really. And I feel like this is, really restrained who maybe i'm so used to hearing them in the 70s but i feel like daltrey doesn't like sing as powerfully as he does later on or even before i think when we listen to those other albums and i feel like i don't get as much of like the hard driving guitar and and um drums in this on this album Keith Moon agrees with you. He said it's basically them playing softer than they ever have in their career. Yeah, and I, and I felt that, and I don't like the Who like that. And I don't think, while the songs, you know, I guess it's it's ambitious for sure, and I feel like it does succeed in telling a linear story. Like, you can follow along. Like, I was nodding my head as you were reading the descriptions um, of the of the different songs and the progression. I don't really enjoy the songs that much and i don't feel like with the exception of pinball wizard and a couple of other songs i just don't really i don't really think the the writing is there for for an an album that's so long and i'm not sure maybe like you said maybe it's different live um seeing it or you know i i I think there's also been I didn't end up watching the movie. I am curious to see it after after this to see what um there's what, a whole thing with that of who they tried to get cast in that movie. I I was <laughs> I was reading specifically about the movie and not the albums. So yeah, I saw the whole thing about Stevie want they wanted Stevie Wonder as the pinball wizard. <laughs> oh, no way. <laughs> yeah. They did. And he was game too. Yeah, and Ken, and Ken Russell, I know the director from from some other provocative '70s movies, and but and full coked out Elton John was also uh, yeah. uh, affiliated with that, which is also awesome. So yeah, I guess we'll start with that. It 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 didn't really work with me. Um, it didn't. I appreciate you telling me about the Acid Queen Underture connection because that does make more sense now and this you know this album is almost as long as trout mask replica and it it definitely doesn't feel as long as trout mask replica um despite the I hope time. not yeah jeez yeah, <laughs> low bar i i feel like for every like good song there's like they're trying too hard to to fill in the story with songs that are ultimately not listenable or re-listenable for me 
So gotcha. Matt, what, are, what are your thoughts? I know you guys have more of a relationship with Josh. I couldn't disagree with you more. <laughs> I, I love this album. This, Oh, this is so good. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. About? Oh, and the more I listen to it, the more I, li- I loved listening to it this week. And I only had, I think I only listened to it. I don't think I got it to three times full, the, the full way through, but I love it. Um, and I have an interesting story with this record because um, I, the Who scared me for a while when I was a kid. Because um, I remember like early on when I was I was into hair metal and stuff, and I remember liking Motley Crue a lot, and, and I wanted to get their records, but my parents wouldn't let me because of censorship and all that stuff, right? So like I remember I had like a family friend who was like an older guy, and he was babysitting me once, and I was like – and I was just so enamored with Motley Crue, and I'm like, man, these, these guys must be the worst – band in the world like that i can't listen to them and i'm thinking in my mind i'm saying worst band in that like they're just really yeah uh, offensive offensive exactly and and his response was no 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 the who is the worst i was like (laughs) what he's like the who is the worst and i was like my the who like my parents had that my parents had tommy right so i remember looking at the cover of this album which i also love and it's got these eerie guys kind of like i don't know like reaching out and touching like water or something with ripples in the water or whatever. And it's just got the, the these weird faces. And I'm like, mm-hmm. what is, what is this album? And my parents are listening to this record. It's like, Holy crap. So like, and I didn't realize like what I was talking about. Like he might, my, my, the babysitter just hated the who. So like for a while, these, these guys scared <laughs> me and this album was very like traumatic. But then as I got older, I learned more about it and stuff. It's like, Oh, okay. It's just like classic rock. But anyways, I digress. The, I, the, First of all, it's got one of my probably I would say one of my top five favorite opening tracks of all time. I love the way it opens. I think Overture is a great that Overture opening is an awesome track. track. Yep. So great. It's just basically they, they cover various parts of different songs in the record and the way they combine it and the musicianship is great. Mm. Yes, Keith Moon and John Entwistle are a little bit more in the background on this record, but um but you can still hear them, um, and it's Keith Moon's drumming is still phenomenal. Like when I listen to, um, what is it, the Doctor? There's a Doctor. The yeah. fills that he's doing, in in that, and it's almost like I I would like them to turn it up. That's probably my only complaint with that. But he's doing some great fill work, drum filling in, in that record or that 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 song. Um, and I, there's just no. I don't think there's a maybe the weakest track on here for me is welcome like there's something about that that's just like oh it's okay but i i love everything the hawker is great that little guitar part the dent dent and then you've got like keith moon on the timpani dun 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 it's a very powerful song i totally get it i totally forgot about it when i was listening to this i was like that's a great song um you know uh and then the 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 ent whistle songs man that guy writes some creepy ass songs so he's got the uh the, the that's torture. his deal yeah <laughs> yeah he he so he's doing the uh, cousin kevin the torturing song and then yeah the, that uh, is the a, unc- yeah, some creepy the uncle ernie song the molesting song and put the cousin that's kevin what he song. did though he outsourced the creepy songs to ent whistle on every album even He's, on uh, the Who Sell Out, which we covered, you remember the weird song? Like they were yes. all end whistle songs. Yep. Yes, and, and that's that's that was a good decision. The, the the cousin Kevin song is one of the most fascinating songs on this for me because it's a very, it's a harsh song. I wouldn't, I I can't really say it's melodic, um, but yet it is. It's it's a melodic in a very different way, and the chorus of that. And the progression of the notes is so interesting. It's so unique. And it, the more I listen to it, the more I love it. It's just, um, and I think Pinball Wizard is a great song too. It's like in the middle of the pack for me. It's like when you have a song as good as Pinball Wizard and I 
put you in the middle of the pack in terms of my favorite songs. I mean, to me, it's just a great album. It's long. I get that. It's 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 a slog to get through the whole thing, you know. But if you got the time, I I think it pays off. Um, I. Yeah, the, the story is always kind of muddled. We talked about this before with concept albums and rock operas. Yep. Um, it's not really that good. It's It was interesting to hear John give the synopsis because there were certainly bits and pieces in there that I was like, oh, I didn't know that, right? Because I just I just didn't. But um, uh, yeah, I, I don't know, man. I don't know what it is. I, I totally disagree with you. Maybe you need to listen to it more. Maybe this just isn't your thing. Um, but um, this is a classic record, and I am certainly in the camp of uh, I can't get enough of Tommy. All right. Well, perfect, because I straddle the line between both of you guys. Um, and I'll, okay, I'll say this. Uh, my favorite versions of The Who are the proto-punk early Who and um, uh, the sort of the big stadium Who that I think has kind of been over-commercialized to the point where they're underrated because their songs are played so often that you forget how great some of their songs are because CSI, for example, just, you know, you know, prostitutes them across the board. So those are my favorite versions of the Who because they're both versions of it. And I will, I will also say that as rock operas by the Who go, I'll live and die by Quadrophenia, and we'll get there eventually. But that's the one that uh, is my favorite. Yeah. I think that if this album was a single album, this would be a fantastic album. I think that as a double album, it's just a little bit too long. And I think I, I kind of agree with Josh that for every song that I really like, there's a song that eh, just doesn't hit me. Um, but much like Matt, I also feel like the stuff that hits is really, really good. Um, Un- Overture and Underture are both... Underture's as good a 10 minutes, and I'm not a long song guy, but if you're going to do 10 minutes, to me, Underture is how you do it. Um, everything about that is is really good in terms of the musicianship, the pacing, the placement on the album. I love it after mm. The Acid Queen, which is another song I really like. Um you talked about Pinball Wizard, but I'm Free is, is a I think, a great Who song um, along the way. I have always liked Sally Simpson quite a bit as a deep yeah. cut Who song yep. as well. Um, and I, unlike most concept albums, I do think there's a linearity here and a coherence with the story that the music um, sounds like what you're what's being talked about that is rare in a concept album um it's also important to know like that this was released in 1969 and i know earlier you talked about nothing i mean nothing sounded like tommy that came out this was this was ambitious even in an era of ambitiousness so i always give points for that because you know it wasn't like the who were reinventing anybody's wheel they were you know they were inventing their own wheel and it's funny because i i've always thought that like the who and the kinks were kind of lost at birth in some ways like british groups that to some idea wrote about british themes loved concept albums <laughs> loved you know because you know the who who sells out tommy quadrophenia you know the kinks you know we're going to cover village preservation but you know we've we've done a bunch along the way lola comes later and stuff but there's a little bit of that here, you know, with Pete Townsend and, you know, Ray Davies are the guys that were willing to push that envelope and take chances. So I, I will always give the who credit for that. You can hear Keith Moon becoming like 
big arena rock drum keith moon as matt matt said the fills are when you think keith moon the speed of how he drums and the fills are the two things that stand out and like he he does what i call the shotgun fill at times which is the classic keith moon that you know and then sort of that jazz empty feel the the patter patter fills you know basically it's this album is just him debuting what you'd hear from him across different albums in the 70s um the songwriting is solid. Uh, Pete Townsend, I'm, I'm always amazed by how good a guitarist is because I forget sometimes because the rhythm section of The Who is so good. Um, but yeah, he's a, he's a really excellent guitar player. And yeah. so I would definitely give this a, a, a listen if you've never heard it. Um, I can't guarantee you'd like it, and it is a long listen, so you have to be prepared for it. But you really can't write a, a history of the late 60s without this album. And I think that's... That's something to be said for that. Yeah, I I think this is probably the most successful rock rock opera concept album that there is. Although I haven't heard Quadrophenia either, and I was just looking at the movie for that, and that seems intriguing also. But um, I do like that the Matt you mentioned the um, the overture containing like snippets of songs throughout the album, and I do like how they bring that back they incorporate different song snippets throughout the whole album as well um or i i hear like audio cues to reference other songs or um or or maybe even the overture um i think that's well done um like i said it's ambitious um but i think the more we listen to these albums from the 60s the more i appreciate the the conciseness and the uh, getting to the point um, yeah. well, of, I, of albums. And I would say, you know, building off of that, I, I, overall, I agree, right? I, I think I think it's it's hard to make a album really good that's also really long, right? Yeah. To, to, to sustain someone's attention for well over an hour, you know, right. go borderline hour and a half that some records do, double whether it's double albums or later on in you know, when in the CD era, when there weren't technically a double album, but they were still like almost eighty minutes long, right? It's, it's well. Would it's, you say, Matt, that some of that is because you're not using a discriminating eye in a lot of cases? You're just throwing everything on there, and some of it's just should be left on the the heap. It's, it's it could be that. It's also just like I don't know. It, there's there's something about the feel of listening to an album where if you're in the thirty to forty five minute range. It feel general. I don't care what genre you are, how long the songs. If the album is about that length, that feels right, right. And when you go beyond, once you yeah. hit beyond forty five, you get into fifty and sixty and beyond. That's like wow, that's a little bit long. And I don't. It's just it's just a general feel. Um, so I think it's hard to make a long album really good. And that's one of the reasons why I like this or like the Use Your Illusion albums, right? That's another great example that those are really long albums, but I but they're so good, right? And so consistent. And I, th- I, th- I think that that can be a hard thing to do. And I think that that's one of the reasons why what makes me like this even more is even though, yes, I think that the I think the the probably the first side and I think it I think it does get a little weaker as it goes on, I would say as an overall whole. Um, but I still, so I can see why people would be like, oh, this is too much, right? And it's, it is, it's, that's, it's almost like that's what the intention was. But, um, but for me, this record 
it pretty much hits the whole way. It keeps me interested. There's a lot of variation going on, the, not just the musicianship, but the songwriting. They're varying the vocals, um, the structure. You've got short songs. You've got really long jam-out songs. It's a little bit of everything, and it's just done such so well. The production's really good, just very high quality all around, and um, it's it's just, yeah, I just really like it. Um and, and I'm curious, John, because I'm just looking at the Wikipedia page here. It looks like all the songs are basically Townsend songs with the, those Entwistle songs. What's the Sonny Boy Williamson? Can I, he wrote The Hawker, which is one of my favorite songs mm -hmm. on this. Who is this guy? Uh, Do you know anything I, about he, this? I don't know a whole lot about him, to be 100% honest. I, I think that's going to be the definition of a cleaning the stacks next week. But uh I'll look into it because okay. um, I just did a quick thing I, on on you on Wikipedia and that that I think that's probably worth it because it seems like he might have died in '65. So oh wow that song, okay that song exists. Like, I don't, how does that exist? Well, you know me, I don't like album. to go long. Well, <laughs> I'll save that for another time because I don't like to go long on the bios at the beginning. I like the the, the discourse a little more, and there sure. was so much to jam in with this album. Um, but I'll I'll guarantee you I'll I'll look into that and I will present next week some. Things. So instead of being ignorant and trying to fake my way through it, I'll instead admit to not having the background there and kind of I, come back. I to appreciate it. your dedication to excellence, John. Thank you. <laughs> Most excellent. Yeah. Where, Matt, that's, where, that's what where I'm is, known for. Where's the split on the album since you have it up? Oh, so um, so the first, uh, well, there's four sides, right? So it, side oh, right. one ends with a hawker and then goes and then Christmas and through Underture. So Underture ends the first. Underture is the, the end of album one. Yep. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that then it starts sense. with, do you think it's all right? And the final track, obviously, is we're not going to take it. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, yeah, I, I love it. I loved, I loved revisiting it. it. It had been a while since I had listened to this. And um, I knew that I liked it, but I don't know, something about, maybe it just hit me right this week. But when I listened to it the two and a half to three times that I listened to it this week, I, I was just like, man, this is great. I, I need to listen to this more. So um, big thumbs up for me. Nice. Yeah, definitely gotcha. listen. Definitely listen to it once if you've never heard it. I mean, I'm glad I went on the journey, but I don't think I'll be revisiting the album ultimately. And you know what's interesting? I don't think that any of the takes, and we had three different ones. I don't think that any of the takes are wrong. I really do think it kind of comes down to how it hits you. And unlike other ones where we've sort of forcefully agreed or disagree, I don't know if I necessarily agree or disagree with either Josh or Matt on my polarities because I can see what their take is. And, you know, I, I would just say this is one, listen to it and be curious to have your feedback to it for those that are listeners. So. I, I will say too, just right, Josh. that there's there's one Keith Moon credited writing track here, which is Tommy's Tommy's Holiday Camp, which might be the goofiest song on here. I'm like, they gave Keith Moon a writing credit on that. <laughs> like that's uh, Keith Moon's like, I got an idea, guys. Hold off, let me just. I believe, I believe the writing credit was because he made a suggestion to Pete Townsend about something, and then Pete Townsend took it and ran with it, and he figured, well, Keith Moon kind of refine that for me so we'll go ahead and give them the writing goofy. credit it's funny for for how much the who didn't like each other in some ways unlike say a mccartney and lennon where they were constantly fighting for that stuff the who on the other hand would just credit each uh yeah that's you know they were very casual with stuff like that yeah. and uh and they stayed together so there you go so all right all right josh nick drake five leaves left five leaves left five to go um all right nick drake and in the opening montage, you heard fr Fruit Tree, and now you're going to hear a little bit from River Man. Gonna see the River Man 
gonna tell them all I can about the plan. If it tells me all he knows about the way his river flows and all night shows in summertime. Okay, Nick Drake. Did you, did you guys know much about him or who he is before this? I knew some. I have not listened of, to him. Yeah, I, I, oh, sorry. Go ahead, John. I I just knew his name because he's often dropped. I I did not know much of his work. Now, yeah, I I knew some of his work. I know a little bit about him as a person, but um, not a ton. Okay, yeah, I didn't know anything about him either. Um, so he lived a a short, uh, had a short career and a short life, unfortunately. Um. But Five Leaves Left it was released July 3rd, 1969. It's currently 30th on Best Ever Albums, Albums of the 60s. Um, Nick Drake was born in 1948 in Burma, which is now Myanmar, to be politically correct. Uh, his father was an engineer, and that's, and that's what took him over there. Um, and then he died in 1974 at the age of 26. Um, he released this album when he was 21, and this is his debut album. Now, part of it, uh, I'll say up front, he, he suffered from major depression his entire life. Um, and he, um, as a result, he only released three albums. And um, it's said he died of an overdose of antidepressants. Um, the doctor ruled it a suicide, but... Um, it could have been an accidental overdose as well. So that's ultimately what killed him. Um, uh, factoring in the depression, he did not like to be performed live or to be interviewed. Um, there's no known video footage of him. Only photographs and home video footage from his childhood exist. Hmm. Um, another thing contributing to his depression, I'm sure, was he, he never saw success while he was alive. Um, his album sold very little upon release. It was very much... Um, posthumously that he became popular and influential among many artists um the also the antidepressant that he was taking was amitriptyline which the brand name is elevil and um that antidepressant is now discontinued by the fda and it's a, a different type of antidepressant and and with the popularity of ssris they've kind of replaced that type of antidepressant Anyway, um, he started out uh, after coming back from Burma as a child. He, in England, he played multiple instruments in high school, including piano, clarinet, and saxophone. And that's kind of where he got his, his music start. He started playing in bands at that time as well. In 1965, he bought his first acoustic guitar and, and was self-taught. Um, he learned finger picking and, and open chords himself. In 1967, he moved into London um, to his sister's place and enrolled at Fitzwilliam College, um, which is part of the Cambridge University system. So he's one of those uh, English children who went from boarding school to, to grade school into the university system. It was at this time that he, in college, that he discovered 
um, British and American folk music. It was also during this time that he discovered marijuana, which he was a big, uh, big fan of and pretty much smoked constantly um, from what I um, what quotes were given about that. It was at this time um, he also started performing at bars and coffee houses in London. It was discovered by Ashley Hutchings, who was the bass player of Fairport Convention, who we touched on way back in episode three of Coming Stacks. Um, Ashley introduced him to Joe Boyd, who was a 25-year-old American producer working in the UK and was considered influential in in the folk scene. Um, there and after Boyd heard a demo of Drake playing he offered him a contract with his with his record label or production company called Witchfinder which was a a part of Island Records Um, Nick Drake recorded this initial album in 1968 Um, Boyd was the producer and was inspired by Leonard Cohen's debut which we have not talked about yet but will be coming up soon, I, I believe, in future episodes. Um, and he wanted a similar style for Nick Drake. Um, this included string arrangements, which you guys heard, and, and backing from local folk musicians, such as Fairport Convention's guitarist Richard Thompson and and Danny Thompson from, from Pentangle, which was another folk, a prominent folk band at that time. Um, the initial recordings did not go well. Um, there was differences in opinion between Drake and Boyd as to the direction of the album. Um, they were both unhappy with the arranger, Richard Anthony Hewson. So um, Nick Drake uh, encouraged or wanted to, his friend to come in and do the arrangements um, from school, Robert Kirby. And, and so he was brought in with, um, with, them, with some trepidation, but he proved them wrong and he did almost all the arrangements on this album except for um, the arrangement on Riverman. There were also post-production difficulties and the album was poorly marketed and supported by Island Records. It received very little radio play and Drake was also unhappy because the album um, information on the inlay was wrong. Um, They had songs in the wrong order. It was mistitled in one track and lyrics that were were printed that weren't in the final versions of the songs that were recorded. Uh, Reviews of this album by the press were also mixed. And the title of the album is a reference to an old Rizla cigarette papers packet, which used to contain a printed note near the end saying only five leaves left. So after this album was released, he started to retreat more and more from live performances. He had some negative experiences from crowds um, opening for bands like Fairport Convention. Um, later on, he would sometimes leave mid-set, um, and he because his uh, songs were in different um, tunings between songs. He would just sit between songs, tuning the guitar and not saying anything um, on stage, and so. Uh, you know, not a good way to uh, keep a band, uh, keep an audience interested in what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would imagine that would not be a dynamic live performance. Yeah. So um, in 1971, it released a second album, uh, Brighter Later. It has a more pop and jazzier sound with some drum and bass tracks in it, um, as Drake wanted to get away from the pastoral sound of this album. 
Um, his depression also worsened during this time, and his family made him see a psychiatrist, and he was prescribed antidepressants at this time. He was uh, still smoking marijuana regularly, and he was hesitant to take antidepressants because he didn't want it to affect his marijuana use. And his friend Robert Kirby described him as smoking, quote, unbelievable amounts of cannabis. And he started also showing signs of psychosis during this time. So that's pretty severe um, depression if you're showing signs of psychosis. Um, one doctor actually said that he thought he had schizophrenia and not major depressive disorder. But his sister said that this time period is when things started to go wrong as well. Then he put out his third album in 1972 titled Pink Moon, um, and that's very stripped down. It's only him and his guitar on the entire album, with the exception of a piano opening on the um, opening track. Um, this sold even less than the other two albums, um, and he decided to retire from music after this. Uh, he moved back in with his parents and became increasingly depressed. Um, he was hospitalized at one point. And in 1974, he actually returned to the studio to record tracks for what would be his fourth album. And when he got to the studio, he was dirty and disheveled. He had long hair and dirty fingernails. Um, and he could no longer sing and play the guitar at the same time. Um, so then, uh, unfortunately, he, he died in the his bedroom at his parents' home in 1974. He came down to get some food and said he was going to take some pills to help him sleep and then um, his mom found him the next day um, the initial coroner's report said that it was suicide by antidepressant overdose and then his family has you know kind of said they don't necessarily agree with that and that's kind of where the discrepancy comes in there were there was no uh, posthumous articles or documentaries about him upon his death um you know, all of his albums sold less than 5,000 copies. Um, however, Joe Boyd did do a service to Drake uh, because in his contract with Island Records, it said that his music is never to go out of print. So um, that's why it's never necessarily um, forgot, been forgotten. It wasn't until the 80s that artists started name-checking him as inspiration. Um, people like Kate Bush, uh, Robert Smith of The Cure, which has a song, uh, or actually the name of the band is a reference to Nick Drake, um, The Black Crows, Peter Buck of R.E.M., they've all said that they were influenced by Nick Drake. Mm. Um, in the late 90s, the BBC started putting out documentaries about him, which renewed interest as well. And then in 1999, a song from Pink Moon, the third album, appeared in a Volkswagen Cabrio commercial. Um, which renewed interest. And then he also started appearing on movie soundtracks like Garden State and Royal Tenenbaums, which is where I think I first heard him was on that Garden State soundtrack. Um, and I looked up that Volkswagen commercial, and I definitely remember that commercial as well. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a good song. Uh, so I, I think that's why it stuck with me. So, yeah, that's kind of the whole, uh, you know, unfortunately that's the whole story of his life in a nutshell and his recording career there is just those three albums and then there's some material that were from recordings that were released um after the fact but there's no no really other material so you can hear pretty much everything in three albums that he produced and we're rec we're covering the other two aren't we um i don't know actually i think we I are believes i believe so. 70s i believe okay. they're all on the list yep Okay, so yeah, so we'll hear them all, and we'll get the we'll get the full picture of Nick Drake. But 
Matt, what did you think about listening to this album? So I, I like I said, I knew some. I knew Nick Drake coming into this, um, maybe initially from movies as well, Josh. Like he, because he did certainly get a little bit of a resurgence in some like indie films and things like that. Um, I also know that he's kind of like a darling in the indie music world. You know, um, yeah. I, I, there's been songs that friends of mine have made mixes for me, and they Nick Drake has has, has made his way onto some of those mixes. Um, I'm not a huge fan of him. Not a huge fan of this record. Um, I hate using the word boring, but that's kind of how I felt um, with this record. Uh, mm-hmm. I th- and I think the my biggest issue with this album is the orchestration. I, I the orchestra. I think there's parts of this album that um, I like with the guitar playing, and I would say that probably my favorite song is the first is the opening track. Time has told me it's it's more of a uh, it's as upbeat as he gets, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it, it's, it's not as somber and there's a little bit of slide guitar going on in there. Um, it's a little bit of a country feel, which I, yeah. I, I, I do enjoy that type of sound. Um, but, uh, and he is a good guitar player. There's some really intricate finger picking going on here. Uh, it's been a while since we've heard some sad bastard music, and this is certainly some, you know, this is sad yeah, bastard he's music. He's one of the saddest, I think. Yeah, um, and all that talk about depression and just all that stuff. It, I mean, this this album sounds like depression, you yes. know. Um, mm-hmm. I, I tried to listen to the lyrics here and there, kind of took, but not really. It's, it's you know, it, I, again, I, not my thing. But, uh, yeah, I just it's it doesn't do a whole lot for me, and I really, I, I would like, to like Nick Drake, you know, um, I know that he's seen as, um, you know, I know a lot of people revere him and, and he's, and he's held in very high regard. It's sad that, you know, he's one of those artists that wasn't really appreciated until after his death, um, you know, before he got to really see any benefits of, 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 mm-hmm. of the work that he did. So it is a very sad story, but, um, yeah, like the cello song, it's just like the, actually the verses are okay. And then they then the cello comes in and the humming part, it's just like, I, it just is it's overly sad and overly depressing, I think. Mm-hmm. And I do like sad and depressing music. And that's the thing. It's not like this is totally out of my wheelhouse, but he just takes it. Nick Drake somehow finds a way to take it to the next level. <laughs> and, you know, and it's just, and I'm just like, it doesn't really hit a chord with me at all. Uh, and, and I, you know, I, I, maybe the other albums, I, I don't know any of his albums very well. So this is the first real four way foray mm-hmm. into his stuff for me. So I am into, I know pink moon is like his, his, uh, you know, it's, it's his um, trout mask rep- replica, yeah, if you it's will. The most <laughs> like yeah. him, I guess. Yeah, it's it's his greatest work. So I, I'm interested to see, you know, his other albums. Maybe without the orchestration on that record, I will like it more because I definitely think that that did a disservice here. Um, I think it was too much. I don't think it was needed, you know. Um, yeah. But even with taking that away, the overall, you know, sonic palette of this was just a little bit, little bit much for me, and I just, I was, I was unimpressed as an overall feel so okay john what about you um it's on one hand he has a a beautiful warm tone to his voice Mm -hmm. doesn't he and um yeah he has a really nice voice and it's warm which is interesting because it does i think you said it sounds kind of like i've (laughs) i've always used the example that if you want to hear what like depression sounds like you listen to like dirt by Alice in Chains, right? Like Lane Staley on that album. It's like, it, you imagine it's what it's like to be depressed and do heroin, right? And there's mm-hmm. a certain sound. And I wouldn't say it's as clear to me that 
what you're hearing is depression on this. I do think that you're hearing extreme sensitivity and sort of a, a gentleness, but also a gentleness that's very fragile in terms of his voice. So you get a lot from it. Um, I liked Nick Drake's songs, but it felt to me after a while that the same song was being replicated over and over again. And I yep. think the lack of variety for me was what didn't sell me on this album as much. I actually think this album in some ways was very similar to an album we covered very early on, the Tim Buckley album mm -hmm. um, in some ways. Um, but that had a... I actually like Nick Drake's voice a little bit better and I like his songs better, but there was more variety on the Tim Buckley album. And so I look at them very similar. Mm -hmm. um, sort of misunderstood geniuses in, in their own way who died young. Um, but who I, I just, I don't ever think I'll pick up the album and listen to it again, because right. I, I think one of the things that is difficult for me is when it, it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to relate to the type of pain that Nick Drake has, if that makes sense. That's um, a good because, thing, John. No, it is. <laughs> it, no, I mean, it's, it sounds terrible to say, but it's like, I, I do feel that to some degree, um, kind of like the Captain Beefheart album, you have to be a little off off the beaten path to some degree in terms of your personality to get it, I think. And the Pink Floyd album, you have to do LSD to do it. I think this is one where you have to be a real deeply feeling person who can relate to sort of that pervasive uh, hopelessness that's in the album. And and I, I can't totally. And so as a result, it, it always feels somewhat detached for me, you know, yeah. like I'm, yeah. at, I'm at a distance. And based yeah. on what Josh said about his life, it, his music is like his life. It sounds like kind of, mm -hmm. you know, at a distance. Uh, and that would be how I'd put this album. It, it has its virtues, but I, I don't know if I'd ever revisit it to be mm. honest. Yeah. Yeah. The, it's a, it's a interesting because this reminds me of so many singer songwriter, male singer songwriters, right? Like Bon Iver or John Mayer or Iron and Wine. I feel like they're all kind of indebted to Nick Drake in some way. Um, but, but um, this, I had a hard time connecting with this album as well. And like you, John, it did feel kind of samey, despite being a very short album. Um, I, I do, it's interesting. There's a kind of a dichotomy between, it has like gentle, peaceful sounding music, but it's very, the lyrics themselves are very like introspective and searching and, and melancholy and... Uh, maudlin was another word that um came that's to a mind. great word <laughs> that's um, a great well. word to describe this album and it's very much you know depending on the song it, it's about like hopelessness or about death or loss or like finding who you are or trying to connect with people and it seemed like that reflected in his life like he had a very hard time connecting with people and and that comes through in these songs um i unlike you matt i did like the string arrangements on this album i thought mm. those were or stand out to me and he is a very good like john said well like you both said he is a good guitar player with a good voice so he um that has a strength for him we'll, we'll be listening to his albums in order coincidentally so i'll be interested to see what the the next two sound like and maybe like you guys will will connect more on one of the other two um but yeah I, it's surprising to me a little bit that this album is so high on the list. Yeah. Um, 
but do you think some of that do you think some of that is that people can't help themselves with the tragic artist a little bit i can't help but think the romantic yeah tragic yes there yes. it's like um i always struggle with that you know what i mean because there's plenty of artists who you know i think it's the argument always when someone dies young you know mm-hmm. like how do you context them or does it elevate the the does it elevate the, and there's just a romanticism to that you know doomed romantic type right. of feel you know yeah well and, and nick drake too has become has become an artist that's cool to like like it's hip to like nick drake you know mm. it's it's like it, it's and that's what i'm saying like i just know that so many people like him and it's and he's not a uh, an overall the grand scheme of things he's not a well-known artist you know it's right. not like you know pe- you drop his name most people never heard of nick drake um so that's why it's kind of like the cool underground thing to do and it's like this is like a pitchfork you know type of artist that they mm-hmm. would be like this is one of the greatest of all time and you're just okay i'm listening to it and i'm like like you john i, I think that's a I, i'm not gonna go back to this you know and i'm not yeah. saying and i do like his voice and i think that some of the things that you're saying about that is is right but this is i there's other artists that I would rather like Sun Kill Moon is a good example of someone that mm-hmm. that's somewhat similar to this, and and the stuff that he does. And I don't love all of his stuff. Uh, or the, the, I forget that guy's name. Um, it's the guy from the bass. He played the bass player in Almost Famous, but he does like he was in Red House Painters, and he's got um he's and he does his own stuff. But it's a very similar to melancholy type of sound, but mm-hmm. it, it, it's more interesting. It's I connect with it more. So it's, it's so this is a little bit like I said, it's a little bit in my wheelhouse. But the way that Drake does it. Nick Drake, <laughs> the yeah. way that Nick Drake does it is uh, is very just, different feel to the other Drake. Very different yeah. feel. Yeah, I probably would rather listen to the other Drake, but this is just blah. It's just a whole lot of nothing, and I just I don't connect with them. You know. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. He he seems in retrospect like the perfect artist to put on a mixtape or or on a soundtrack because like one song would be really would probably fit in really well. But yeah. like listening to a whole album of it, um, that's a great way to put it, Josh. Work. I feel yeah. I felt that way too. I felt like if I heard individual songs, I might feel differently. But mm-hmm. when you get an overall theme of of that cascading depression, um, it it can wear on you a little bit. And it's the second straight week where there is an album that, in this time of you know <laughs> uncertainty, yeah. it was not an easy listen, um, which I don't need my albums to be sparkly and optimistic. I don't. But you know, between this and Trout Mask Replica, I would I, it wasn't a struggle to listen to this a second time, but certainly I wouldn't say that it was a pleasure. Um, mm-hmm. it it left you it left me not wanting to to go to that headspace again, I guess would be a good way to put it. Yeah, and I'm wondering if like all those people who really like Nick Drake, I, I, does it have something to do with the you know the timing, right? Are we looking at an artist that was doing something that was just unique in that time? I mean, I would I will say it's not a dated record. It sounds like something that's, that's a very well, that could be done uh, today, but it's also because it's very stripped down and there's not a whole lot of production behind it, so you don't you know there, it's not going to have that dated feel, but. I, I don't know. Well, I, I do I do wonder why it's why he's so revered. Is John the lyrics are they really like pro- They're profound? fine, but I, I'll tell you what I think it is. I think it's that a lot of musicians themselves struggle with a lot of these same concepts. And to mm-hmm. see someone who's like a true archetype of the suffering artist who isn't appreciated for his art till later, I think there's a lot of 
artists that look at that as very authentic. Um, not that mm. you're not authentic if you're Jim Morrison or Jimi Hendrix, but both of those guys were very appreciated in their own time. So you know what I mean? It's not um, they died young, but they're they're they died young for the masses, kind of in the same way that like a Tupac or a Kurt Cobain, right? You know, they transcended it and they did it. So who do you look for as sort of your the archetype of like the the musician with the authenticity and sort of the the rare you look for somebody a little bit under the radar i think and i think there's yeah. a little bit of that going on and i don't want to undersell nick drake but i do think that's a little bit of what the appeal is well he certainly yeah. is authentic you know this is this guy is laying it all out there you know yeah. and, and, and you say whatever we want about him but that's definitely true um you know but um yeah. So I, but like I said, yeah. Oh, the guy's name from Sun Kill, Kill Moon is Mark Kozalik, and that's that's a similar type of artist. He does have that kind of the morose, very somber, almost depressed. But there's there's he's got a little bit more variety in his stuff for me, at least mm -hmm. with a couple of his albums. And um, and and I'm like I I I connect with it a little bit more. But um, I I I, may, I hope I like the other stuff because, like I said, I think that this is an artist that has the potential for me to like, but this was not the album for... If more of the songs were like the opening track, which was a little bit, and maybe one of the reasons I liked it more because, A, there was no orchestration, and B, yeah. it was it was a... It was it was as upbeat as I think he was getting, at least in terms of the the, the music, the the sonic yep. sound that you were getting. That slide guitar, through an he should do more slide guitar in his you know, get you know pep it up a little bit. But um, but clearly that, mm -hmm. that's not where his mind was. Um, yeah. you know, and it, he probably needed to to do the sounds that he that he did. So, um, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so there we go. Yeah, we're <laughs> probably a the more depressed now. <laughs> probably the most morose bio that we we have had on the entire time. Uh, no. That makes two straight weeks where Josh has had a hell of a bio to to, to do. So, and Josh, um, and you were th you were thumbs down on every album this week. This was a rough week for you. I know. I was a little hesitant going in to be so negative, but. Um... That's how I felt. So you got to be real, man. You got to be real. I'm, you got to go real like Nick Drake. You got to go watch. <laughs> you got to go watch Santa's Magic Toy Bag and get some of that magic back, Josh. It's on, and please, uh, please it's on don't. Amazon Prime. And yeah, please don't do the equivalent of on the podcast of sitting up there and strumming your guitar in segments. We we need you to be a little more active than that. Yeah. So. Uh, well, next week, I, it'll be interesting because we're going to be revisiting three artists that we've covered, some not for a while and some very recently. Uh, Josh is going to dig back into Leonard Cohen for, I think, the first time since episode two, if I remember correctly. Um, and we're going to be doing songs of or episode one, maybe even. Josh, which, which uh, one was episode it? Episode two. Episode two. Okay, so I was right yeah. the first time. So we're going to be covering songs of Leonard Cohen by Leonard Cohen. Yeah, his debut um, album. Yeah. His debut, exactly. Uh, jo Matt will be doing uh, Bringing It All Back Home by Bob Dylan, certainly someone we've covered plenty on this and will still continue to cover. And uh, I'll be doing another artist we've covered quite a bit, The Kinks. We're going to be doing The Kinks Are the Village Preservation Society. So that's going to be our three for next week. And we will officially be within the top 25 next week as well, guys. So we are really charging to wow. the top of the charts. We're bringing it Any all back final home, thoughts? John. <laughs> We <laughs> well done. I set you up for that one. So, any final thoughts before I sign off for us? Um, no. <laughs> I <laughs> no. I am. Uh, I'm actually. I didn't know. I didn't. I. I don't pay. I don't do uh, planning ahead of time. But I didn't know what the three albums are next week. But I that those are, those all sound good. I am very uh, particularly the Kinks, the the Preservation Society album. I I was a big fan of Arthur. 
And uh, I know that this, that was the album that came after this one, yeah. after the Preservation the Society. And I know that that's like the big one. So uh, I am uh, I'm interested to get back into that and love me some Dylan, man. We could all let's do Dylan every week. Let's just let's just do it. <laughs> we pretty you much know? do. Come so on. you almost get your wish. So, yeah. Oh, so. All right, for Matt and Josh, I got it right, guys. Uh, this is John signing off this week for episode 24 of Combing the Stacks. Listen at the end for all of our platforms as well as our socials. It's been our pleasure to have hosted you for another episode of Combing the Stacks. But the time has come for us to turn off the lights and send you home with a fond farewell. Before you leave, remember that new episodes are available every Thursday on a variety of streaming platforms, including Anchor, Apple, Google, Spotify, Overcast, and Pocket Casts. You can email with questions, comments, or general feedback at combingthestacks at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at combingthe. We'd also like to give a shout out to Defy the Mall, who performs our theme song Coastin, as well as Red Bellows, who are creating the ambiance you're currently experiencing by way of their track, Phonetic. Have a great night. <laughs>